0: I was reading your piece uh, that you wrote on a Substack account about interest rates over the last couple of days, and I was minded of a presentation I did back in 2018 to a credit union conference, um, I think it was in Athlone, and um, I was saying at that stage that uh, we, we were starting to see signs of growth recovery in the Euro area, and indeed in the United States, uh, but that... From a European perspective, I was projecting or speculating that by the end of 2019, um, the European Central Bank would start to discuss the possibility of moving away from the zero interest rate policy and that by the end of 2020, that an interest rate tightening, a gradual tightening could start at that stage. And um, of course, I could argue I was wrong, okay, and i could i could argue that covid in march 2020 blew that sort of projection out of the water but the truth was that during 2019 um the eurozone economy lost a lot of momentum again and um there was absolutely no requirement for the european central bank to get remotely nervous about inflation growth or indeed do anything on the interest rate front but i also remember saying that day that i hope to god i'm right about this because If we go into 2020 and 2021 with interest rates still at zero, it will be a sign of economic failure. It will be a sign that the eurozone economy ran out of steam again and failed to recover. So I was suggesting that um, higher interest rates would be a positive sign and that rock bottom interest rates would be a sign of failure and negative outcomes. Okay. And um, because there is a sort of a narrative around the place that low interest rates are unambiguously positive, but they're not. Interest rates are very low for a particular reason. And that reason is that economic growth is subdued. There's no inflation in the system. And um, I was smiling to myself when I was reading your Substack piece during the week where you were suggesting that um, the best thing that could now happen the Irish housing market would be for interest rates to start to rise.
1: Yeah, there's lots of strands to that, Jim. The first that I'd mention is that the low interest rate thing, everybody's got a favourite explanation of it. And obviously, the one that you posited there is, is absolutely correct, that one of the main reasons why interest rates have been so low has been historically, at least over the last number of years, low growth, and in particular, very low inflation. But that, in a sense, just raises other questions. It's not the full answer. The question arises, why did we have low growth and in particular such low inflation? You recognize in your comments that zero interest rates, or in many cases for governments at least, and for some large depositors in in Irish banks, your interest rate is negative. That if you're a government borrower, the Irish and even the Greeks these days can borrow at negative interest rates. The markets will pay you to borrow money. And that's a sign of abnormality. That's a sign of something being wrong in my opinion, and I think a lot of economists' opinion. There are lots of other explanations as to why we have those low interest rates. Demography, uh, we're going through a period when there's a lot of high-saving people around of a certain age. A lot of governments are trying, you know, in, in Asia in particular, run big current account surpluses that have to be recycled through the world savings systems. And it gets very complicated, sometimes contentious, as to why we have these low interest rates. And you can take a a very long historic perspective. Economists from the Bank of England have done exactly that and noticed that bond yields, long-term interest rates, have actually been falling on a trend basis with lots of volatility, lots of ups and downs, but long-term interest rates have been falling for 800 years and that we're just at the end of a very long trend. Or perhaps we're still in the middle of it, and they got further to fall. I doubt that somehow. But one of the consequences of low interest rates, and this really was the, the trigger for the piece, is that I think, and I think there's plenty of research to back this up. Again, uh, I would cite some Bank of England research from last year that, that backs this up, that for all the talk about what causes the housing problem the uh, house price problem, which is really what we're talking about, are those long-term interest rates. We talk about supply and demand for housing. We talk about whether or not we're building enough houses. We talk about all sorts of things, p- planning regulations, and all these are certainly factors. They're not to be dismissed. But this research that chimes with my intuition is that the, the prime or one of the prime drivers of very high price, house prices globally, not just in Ireland, is this low interest rate thing. And it's a matter of simple arithmetic is, is that, you know, if, rent, if rental yields are as low as one or 2%, which is the corresponding way of saying house prices are very high, it still pays people to borrow money to become landlords. So that, that there's good financial reasons for why low interest rates drive house prices further. And the fact that the housing thing is a, a global phenomenon, certainly for developed economies, it's a problem in the UK, in the United States, in Australia, in Canada, and of course, Ireland. Leads me to think that there is at least one common factor there. I mean, there's no shortage of land in places like Canada, for heaven's sake, or the United States. Uh, different countries have very different planning regimes. Very different countries have very different housing supply regimes, but they all have high house prices. So you're searching for that common factor, and that is low interest rates. Now, I'm not saying you can't get house prices down via a number of routes. Um, If you doubled the supply of housing, if if you somehow magically built half a million houses in Ireland over the next couple of years, I've no doubt that that would have some impact. But you would be fighting this headwind of low interest rates. And that therefore, one of the things that you need to see to get this housing problem globally sorted out is a number of things, but first amongst them, if you like, or first amongst equals, is that interest rates have to normalise. And in a way, I wished I'd call the piece, um, things won't be normal until interest rates are normal. Because we're we're asked the question all the time about work and about the way we're going to balance our working from home, working in the office type lives and commuting patterns and all sorts of things post-pandemic. When will things normalise? And and will they go back to to where they were? Certainly economically, we're not going to get back to anything like normal unless we see, in my opinion, higher interest rates. And it's not just about housing, because I think that um, some observers are right to say that the low interest rate regime has other effects as well. It inflates asset prices. One of the reasons why I and others are writing pieces asking, is there a stock market bubble? Is because interest rates are so low. So there, there, there are lots of, I think, good consequences of low interest rates. Our interest costs, you know, our mortgage rates are very low. So that, that, that in and of itself is a good thing. But when you consider the consequences of low interest rates in the round, I think on balance that they're, they're very negative. How do you get them up again? Well, some people would point to Japan and say, well, you can't. Japan's been trying now for at least 20 years. To get the conditions necessary for higher interest rates, and they haven't been able to do it and that I think that's a well placed criticism in, in or at least observation that it is very very difficult but one of those uh, one of the many consequences of low interest rates is that I do think it contributes to inequality, and that for example that low growth low inflation regime that we spoke about Uh, One big aspect of that has been very low wage inflation around the world. Uh, Economies have not been growing enough to tighten the labour market to the point where workers can demand higher wages in a sustained way. And so, again, if you created the conditions whereby interest rates went up, I think that would have to include very tight labour markets. How do you get very tight labour markets such that they generate a bit of wage inflation? such that they cure at least some of this wage inequality problem, income inequality problem, you have to run your economy red hot. So I think that's what Joe Biden is up to. I've said that on this podcast a few times now. Um, It remains to be seen whether he's going to succeed or not. But this puzzle that we have, why on earth is the Fed only talking about about, uh, removing some of this monetary accommodation that they're doing, this money printing, when inflation is over 5%, where the Fed is at it, they're backed up by Janet Yellen at the Treasury and, of course, the White House. And I think that they they recognise that the problem that low interest rates reveals is widespread. It has many different aspects, high house prices, income and wealth inequality, a whole host of societal ills that flow from that, not least populism, and all those other things, you can trace all of it back to these low-growth, low-inflation issues. So I think that we will not be getting back to normal, economically speaking, and therefore politically speaking, until we see higher interest rates. I don't think we're going back to the time when you and I would remember, Jim. I, want, I can remember in Ireland paying a mortgage rate of 17%. I'm not talking about that kind of normalisation. I'm talking about interest rates going up a bit, not a lot. But until that happens, I think that we're going to be uh, fighting a problem and potentially a big problem. And I I do applaud Joe Biden's experiment. I observe that Europe in the round is not doing this. The ECB is trying its best, but the fiscal authorities are not, in my opinion. So I'm quite pessimistic about our ability to get those interest rates up. I do think that we have, in a sense turned Japanese and are replicating their experience. And I'm quite pessimistic about the prospects of of this happening. And indeed, so are the markets. If you look at that high inflation in the States, 5% plus, the markets are blowing a big raspberry and saying, we don't care. And this is the all important bond market. All of the measures that we look at are saying, the markets are saying very explicitly, good luck with your attempts to get inflation up, Mr. Federal Reserve you ain't going to succeed. That certainly would be one of my concerns, one of the reasons for, for my pessimism, because in a, to an extent, to a considerable extent, I agree with the marketplace. But my piece was was partly inspired by a comment um, or a discussion that I had with, with a commenter who very kindly uh, offered all sorts of remarks about our previous podcast, and in particular, the remarks I made at the end, which was about this problem of high house prices in particular, but also other issues as well. And the way it's affected all of us, but in particular, the way it's affected younger people. And I talked about our generation, you and me, Jim, pulling ladders up behind us in terms of pensions, in terms of job prospects, in terms of house prices, uh, in in, in all sorts of different ways. And and this commenter listed lots of ways that um, I didn't mention. These ladders being pulled up behind us are leading to societal and in particular intergenerational issues that I think are starting to come to the fore. Um, so that's what motivated all of that. There are lots of issues in that, but I, I do think that for pe- for us and for, for any of our listeners looking forward and asking that question, what does economic normality look like post-pandemic? We ain't going to get it until we get higher interest rates.
0: Yeah, it's it's it's, it's very hard to disagree with that. And uh, all, all of the evidence we're getting um, is certainly suggesting that Higher interest rates are still some distance away. Uh, Earlier this week, the Federal Open Market Committee, which is the interest rate setting body within the US Central Bank the Federal Reserve, um, issued its latest statement after its latest meeting. And um, it was basically saying that while economic activity and employment have continued to strengthen um, the sectors that have been most adversely affected by the pandemic, have not yet fully recovered. But more significantly, they say that although inflation is rising, it's largely reflecting transitory factors. And they say that the risks to the economic outlook remain. And they go on then um, in a more specific way. And you know it cites its mandate, which is to achieve maximum employment and inflation at the rate of 2% over the longer run, and obviously, inflation is well over 2% at the moment. But um, the, the, the committee is saying that it will aim to achieve inflation above 2% for some time to come, so that inflation averages 2% over time, and that long-term inflation expectations remain anchored at 2%. 2%. <laughs> That's a typical central bank speak, but what it's basically saying is that uh, the Federal Reserve is not concerned about um, rising U.S. inflation at the moment, it believes that these factors are transitory and it also recognizes that there are still risks to the economy um, and that those risks outweigh any danger that inflation, higher inflation will become embedded in the system. So it's clear that the Federal Reserve is intent on maintaining a very accommodative monetary policy through bond buying or quantitative easing and through official interest rates for the foreseeable future. And I guess the second quarter growth numbers we got again this week from the United States would probably, well, the Federal Reserve, I assume, would have been aware of those numbers um, when it met the other night. But, um, you know, growth came in at 6.5% annualized, about 2% lower than had been expected. Um, and the, there's the, the, the reasons given for this slightly slower growth outcome was that the impact from the fiscal stimulus is now starting to wane as a lot of those employment supports are starting to be taken out of the system and they're also saying that higher prices are actually undermining consumer purchasing power and of course in the south of the country the delta variant is uh, pretty rampant again at this juncture and the other the final point would be that they the latest data suggests that the savings rate is actually Lower than previously thought, ten point nine percent savings rate, um, which is higher than the eight percent pre COVID average. You would have ex- that we have experienced in the states over years. So that savings rate is still high, but not as high as might have been expected. So as a consequence of that, you're you're unlikely to get this surge in consumer spending. Um, as savings are run down that we are likely to see here in Ireland and indeed, I think, in Europe. So anyway, in a nutshell, the slightly weaker growth will certainly feed into the Federal Reserve's very, very relaxed view about growth, inflation and interest rates for the foreseeable future. I I, I guess what's happening in the States um, is perhaps of academic interest. Well, not quite, but It is sort of of academic interest to us here in Ireland and indeed in Europe because the European Central Bank um, obviously sets interest rate policy for us. And uh, this week, we saw inflation numbers out of Germany. Um, The annual rate is expected to come in at 3.8% in July. And wait for it, this is the highest inflation reading since December 1993. Okay, so... When I teach economics to students, the first thing I always say, I want I want to try and show you by the end of this course, is the importance of being able to delve into and interpret statistics to see what the real story is. And of course, the real story is that the VAT cut that was implemented in Germany in the second half of last year as a COVID response, uh, that cut has now been reversed. So you're getting this year on year base effect, which is very significant you know, I, I think if you strip that stuff out, uh, the inflation backdrop in the euro area remains very, very um, subdued, modest. And despite uh, Jans Weidmann, the president of the Bundesbank, the German central bank, recently expressing concerns that the European central bank might keep interest rates too low for too long. Um, I think there is no possibility of the European Central Bank doing anything on the interest rate front for the foreseeable future. So, as a consequence of that, feeding into your substack piece, um, you know, interest rates are going to remain low, and that's going to continue to fuel uh, the housing market here. I think there is no doubt about that.
1: That's the conclusion I draw from the states as well, because I talked about Joe Biden conducting this experiment to try and generate enough growth and inflation such that things like house prices don't go up quite as much as they did in the past via the interest rate effect and all of the other consequences for wage inflation that I talked about. But it looks like he's not going to succeed, partly for political reasons in that Congress is not going to play ball. He had a multi-trillion dollar infrastructure package bill prepared. They only got through a fraction of that, thanks to the uh, obstructive tactics of the Republican Party. And Biden's really now only got just over a year to go before the all-important midterms and the Republicans are determined to stop him from doing anything that might uh, lose them votes during that time. And if he loses the House uh, then, then that's his effective tenure over and he becomes a lame-duck president. And we then go through the, the potential of Trump being reelected and all that again. So the stakes are very high, and I'm not convinced Biden's going to get done what he wants to get done with respect to the economic Bit of his program. And it's certainly the case here in Europe. The idea, which I am advocating, that economies should be run so hot that the labor market tightens to the point where wage inflation is generated, which I think would be a good thing from an inflation perspective, from a young person's perspective, from an income inequality perspective, I think there is no chance of that happening at all in a European context. Um, It saddens me to say that, but I, I don't think it is. So I think you're right. Interest rates are going to stay low for the foreseeable future. And that will help to keep house prices high for the foreseeable future. And these are problems that we're gonna be talking about um, on that rather bleak analysis for years to come.
0: Indeed. Um, Having said that, uh, we also got data out of Europe this morning showing that uh, the Eurozone economy expanded by 2% quarter on quarter, uh, which is a little bit higher than the market had been expecting. And interestingly, it's the southern economies that are driving the growth rebound, um, Italy, Spain, Portugal particularly, because their tourism season is coming back quite strongly there and consumer spending is starting to pick up. But I think the other I- interesting aspect of those data, you know, at, at the end of the second quarter, um, the eurozone economy is still 3% below quarter 4.19, which was the, the last I suppose pre-pandemic um, level of GDP that we saw. So the Eurozone is, as I say, is about 3% below that. Uh, but then Spain is 6.8% below it. Germany is 3.3%. France is um, around 3.3%. So there's still, despite the recovery, um, some economies, particularly the southern ones, have a lot further to catch up than the northern economies. Um, and we also saw that the um, eurozone unemployment rate came in at 7.7 percent. so that represented a, t- a decline of four hundred and twenty three thousand in on employment. Um, but it certainly would not signify a labor market that's on fire, which as you say is one of the preconditions for the European Central bank to start um, tightening policy aggressively. So, um, un- unfortunately, from an Irish housing market perspective, as you say, with interest rates set to remain very low, it's going to continue to fuel house prices. Uh, there's one, uh, there was one piece of information out this week in relation to the Irish housing market, um, because there there is this perennial debate amongst economists here in this country, anyway, and I think it is the same in the UK um, about what really drives house prices. You have. Uh, elucidated and elaborated uh, um, on the impact of interest rates, but there there is then this perennial discussion about supply demand, and I'm sort of old fashioned. I believe that the best way of stabilizing a housing market, um, okay, you can you can do nothing about interest rates, you know, particularly in an Irish context. The European Central Bank will drive that. Domestically, I believe the best thing you can do is to just drive supply as aggressively as possible and try to remove all of those barriers that are preventing um, a proper supply of housing being delivered. But we got second quarter housing completions data for Ireland over the last couple of days. And um, in the second quarter, we completed just over 5,000 new dwellings. Uh, That's 55.5% up on the um, second quarter of last year. Uh, but of course the second quarter of last year was seriously distorted by uh, the full lockdown of the economy that occurred so the year on year comparison isn't great but if you compare the second quarter of this year with the second quarter of 2019 housing completions are almost 5% higher this year so that the supply thing is it's it's starting to come back but there is a long way to go but one final interesting piece in the housing data was that for the first time since the CSO introduced this housing completion series, apartments account for over 25% of the total um, dwelling completions. So um, we, we are definitely seeing um, a lot of apartments coming into the system, which is absolutely required. Uh, but then, of course, that gives rise to this whole argument about the role of the so-called funds, the vulture funds, In buying up these apartments. Uh, But anyway, having said all that, (laughs) the supply side is gradually getting better. Yeah, my my
1: point, I I totally accept that my point about interest rates will come somewhat surprising to a lot of non-economists, that it's more important than supply, for example. The evidence is there to support what I'm saying is that interest rates are a much bigger factor for house prices than the supply-demand balance. And another way of making the same point is that Uh, You might be surprised by how little house prices uh, react to that increase in supply that you've spoken about, or again, saying the same thing slightly different again. You might be surprised by just how much supply is needed to make a serious impact on house price inflation. You might find that the increase in supply via all sorts of interesting channels is just met by increased demand. Uh, and that you might find that uh, immigration or different family demographics and all the rest of it mean that all of those houses end up being occupied at similar sorts of house prices if not higher than they are today all these sorts of things
0: I know that that that's correct chris i would I would totally agree with that uh, because as supply comes on stream, you will definitely see um, the 20 somethings who are still living at home with their parents you know hopefully. Getting an opportunity to get out there into the housing market, so uh, I guess supply does bring forth demand. Uh, but you know, having said that, from a social perspective, I think it is so essential that that supply actually, actually does elicit that demand. Um, and if you if you get my meaning, and oh, I do, and and really, what we're talking about here is a massive ramping up of housing supply. That's you know, it's that there is no actual silver bullet to solving this housing crisis it's a whole series of different things uh, but there's a lot of stuff that can be done on the supply side to um, improve the supply of housing and
1: and don't get me wrong i'm not saying that increasing supply is a bad thing i think it is unambiguously a good thing and needs to be done all i'm saying is that you might be surprised by how little impact it has uh, on any realistic projection of housing supply increase how much impact that actually has on the house price problem. Certainly housing supply is a problem that needs curing, absolutely. But the house price problem is less a supply and demand problem and more an interest rate problem, to make the same point over and over again. And a lot of people, I th- I think, don't really, either they don't get that or they don't agree with it, but I do think there's a lot of evidence to support it.
0: Moving on to uh, the COVID piece, It's a bank holiday weekend here in Dublin. I'm sorry, here in Ireland, not just Dublin. Um, But it's the first sort of semi-normal bank holiday weekend we've had here since 2019. That's important. Um, And it just shows the progress that's been made in the delivery of uh, vaccine and so so on. But uh, I I, I did a 30-kilometer hike in the Wicklow Mountains this morning and got absolutely soaked but ended up in Enniskerry for lunch and um, none of the um, restaurants down there were doing indoor dining. Really? Why not? I, I have no idea. I, I was astounded. You know, you, you would have thought with the restrictions being lifted, um, for, for perhaps they're getting a lot of abuse from the anti-vax people, you know, who who believe that only allowing people in with a cert um, is discrimination. So there's a, there's a lot of, negative stuff going on in relation to that. But whatever whatever the reason is, um no indoor dining available. So uh, uh that thankfully is not the case here in Dublin. But I was just fascinated by that. But anyway, as I say, it's the first semi normal Bank Holiday weekend since twenty nineteen and uh we we have to welcome that.
1: Well we're on the subject of COVID. I was Fascinated to see this morning that Australia announced that when 70% of its population is vaccinated, I'm not sure if that's whole population or adult population, but the the 70% figure is interesting, is that that's when they will begin easing restrictions. And that is, in, in my book anyway, an explicit move to living with COVID. It's an explicit move away from the zero COVID strategy that Australia has been praised and lauded for i think it's pragmatic i think it's the right thing to do but i think it's worth remarking on the fact that even australia now recognizes that uh, zero covid is is the policies necessary for zero covid are a forever strategy you've got to do it forever and that um living with covid is perhaps the way forward they seem to be saying that now That's not to criticise them for anything that they've done before. Their policies have clearly saved a lot of lives relative to an awful lot of other countries. But I I do think that in terms of the context of our own domestic debate, which I think has quietened down, thank goodness, between the zero COVID and living with COVID camps, that even the much vaunted Australia is now saying, yep, we're going to have to open up when 30% of our population isn't vaccinated which by definition must mean that they would expect those people to um, be susceptible to infection, but the consequences of which they are prepared to live with. So I I think that's pragmatic. I think it's interesting. And it's something that our own domestic debates, both in the UK and particularly in Ireland, it's worth noting in that regard. But I'm delighted that you're going to have this free and open weekend, first one in 18 months. And and I I sincerely hope you enjoy it.
0: I certainly intend to
1: OK, well, that's probably all we got time for today, Jim. So have a great weekend and speak to you next week.
0: Great. Thank you, Chris. You have a good one. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods,